Good morning, Oikos Church. Are you excited? Yes. Awesome. When duty calls, we're in the last week of this series, and we are in called to defend the faith. And so when you are called to defend, we talked about last week that Paul was, um, he's seized by this angry mob. He was pulled out, and he simply used the words of Jesus. He just spoke his story. He shared his story about who he was and why God had called him to be here and lead for his church. Um, during that time, this Roman, really the military leader of the city, but kind of a Roman governor, was the one that rescued him. And when he realized that he's a Roman citizen, he took him, and I'm kind of fast forwarding through part of Acts here, so we're going through the chapters, but he took him undercover because he knew that people were ready to kill Paul at a moment's notice. So under the cover of night, he took him along with 470 soldiers, heavily armed soldiers, to make sure he could make it to the overarching governor, and his name was Felix, to have a trial. And so he took him because he knew we don't want to mess with a Roman citizen because that was hard to come by. Your citizenship wasn't just like you appeared in Rome and then all of a sudden they said, oh, you're a Roman citizen. You didn't just fill out some papers and become a citizen. Oftentimes, you had to pay for it. And sometimes, that wasn't as high as a person who was born into it. So there's kind of a hierarchy anyways in this, which reveals a little bit about Paul and his history. He was obviously born into this as a Roman citizen. His parents were probably, they guess, very wealthy. And they were probably very convicted Jewish people because they sent him to Gamaliel, if you remember, to learn. And only wealthy people who had a lot of relation, relational capital would have been able to do that for their son. So Paul, coming from all this, this Roman governor kind of realized this guy's kind of important so he cannot be killed on the way to Felix. So if you think about how many soldiers he had in his encampment, we talked about a 1,000, almost half of them he sent with Paul. That's how important he felt that Paul should arrive there safely. So Felix, once he saw Paul, he then said, well, we can't have a trial unless your accusers actually come and present their case. So he sent out for the accusers to come and do their case. And then this is where we're at today, where the trial begins, and Paul is asked to defend himself. This is in Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through, 1 through 21. So we've been going through this whole series of multiple series on the book of Acts. And I'm going to give you a little synopsis before we get into this trial, that we are coming to the conclusion we have one more series after this, and it's all about Rome. And then when that finishes, we are done with Acts. That doesn't mean that we will no longer worship on Sundays. <laughs> we will then go into an Advent series. Um, but before we do the Advent series, I just skipped ahead. We actually are going to get a lot of stories of the Bible presented by different leaders here at Oikos. 
So the elders have been asked to give a message on the transformation, life transformation, and they're going to connect life transformation to a particular story in the Bible. So you're going to get really a spirit-led month of November to celebrate two years of being a church. Is that awesome? Can you believe it's been almost two years that we've been in Acts? I can. <laughs> so we are concluding Acts, but this is a great thing. When I um, prepared the message today, I really felt that the Lord was pressing on something particular about who we are as people. And that oftentimes when we talk about defend, we kind of take a posture of almost ready to fight. Today you're going to hear something different about defense, and it's depicted by Paul. But first, let's hear the accusers. Verse 1, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer Tertullus to present their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, your excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the cults known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. Tertullus, sorry, I was skipping on that name, but Tertullus is Greek origin. So it comes from the Greek language. But this guy was absolutely 100% a Jewish man. He was hired by the Sanhedrin. That's the religious authority within the Jewish culture. He was hired by them to make sure that they would have an excellent prosecution against Paul. He's a smart man, probably very well educated. And he began looking at how would he accuse Paul of doing something that would be worthy of giving him the death sentence because that was their plan. They wanted to kill him. Because if they could get rid of him, they could stop this whole movement called the way. And the way, if you're a part of the way, was that you were a follower of Jesus and you believed he was the Messiah, that the Messiah had come and that he had come to save the world. And in particular, he saved you through the blood of his death and then his resurrection on the off the cross. So Tertullus, this hired guy by the Sanhedrin, started his prosecution with hypocrisy. See, there's this guy, this Roman historian, um, Tacitus. And Tacitus, he wrote through this whole history of this condemnation of Paul. And what he saw in Felix is that he knew and the rest of the Jews knew that this was a bunch of BS. Because he's saying, you brought peace to us. This is what Tertullus was saying to Felix. Thank you, Felix. Thank you so much for bringing peace to our society. 
to our region. But all the Jews knew that this was not peace. This was actually peace that was more like a desert. In fact, he says, the Romans brought a desert and they called it peace. And to understand that statement, Jerusalem and the surrounding area is kind of desert region. It's dry, it's arid. But for centuries, the Jews had cultivated the soil. They had brought gardens in. They had planted trees, olive trees. In fact, we know that the garden that Jesus went in to pray the night before he gave his life was the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was on a mount. And on this mount were all these olive trees. And they believed these trees were probably, at that time, over 400 years old. So just picture these old olive trees, beautiful. The one thing that I can think of here in Houston is if you've driven down Balin Street in the Heights, these beautiful old live oak trees that cover the street, and they're just beautiful. Well, what the Romans would do when they came in to besiege a city is they'd surround the walled city, and then they began taking over the gardens and cutting down these trees, to, prov to provide fuel for their fire. And they would eat all the food in the surrounding area until the people within the city had no other supplies left. And eventually would just crumble and say, we give up. And so after they had besieged the city, what looked, what used to look like this beautiful, I mean, think about Balin Street, what that would look like. If you've never been down Balin, just think about a covered street with trees. Think about what that would look like if all those trees were just cut down. All the gardens, all the grass were gone. And all it was was dirt. In fact, we have a picture of that. In fact, I just thought of this. This is kind of add-on to the sermon. But if you were here in Houston during Ike and you drove down to Galveston, that's what the Romans did. It was just nothing. All the trees were dead. All the gardens gone. That's what they did. So when Tertullus is saying and coming out with this whole thing with Felix of how you're a peace bringer, he's being a hypocrite because he doesn't believe that and none of the Jews believe that. But to get on his good side, he goes ahead and begins this whole thing about how the Romans were actually good for the Jews. And then in verse 5, he moves from hypocrisy, and then he begins calling Paul derogatory names. So in the translation in verse 5, it says troublemaker. A more appropriate translation for that, and much stronger, would be plague. So he calls Paul, he's actually a plague, a pestilence that has been brought upon our people, destroying us, making us sick because of the things he's saying about who Jesus is. So he's pointed as Paul being the main disruption, rather than really it wasn't Paul at all. Paul would simply walk into an area and begin talking about Jesus. It was the reaction against that that was the trouble. It was those who wanted to kill Paul that would cause the riots. Not really Paul's action. It was their reaction. 
And we actually see that even today in our society, in our culture. In fact, I have an example of this almost rejection of Jesus, even if you think you're a follower. There's an educator in um, the school system who wanted to bring in, and this happened right here in Houston. They wanted to build character within their school. And so they were talking about these character traits that they wanted to bring in, and one was tenaciousness, that they wanted to bring in this do not quit attitude. And so there's a story, and one of the best ways to bring about character is to tell a story of someone who exhibits that character of tenaciousness. The problem was is that this book about this character involved seven times when this character said, it was because of my faith in Jesus that I was tenacious. It was because I prayed to the Lord that I was able to be courageous enough to be tenacious. These seven times in this entire story then prompted another educator within this school to say, we can't do this book. Now, in the same school, they do a process where they do a meditative moment. And some of the teachers even tell them to, you know, put their fingers like this. And it's directly out of Hinduism. But that's okay. But this same educator that objected to the book would profess that she's a Christian. But she felt that if she would have to do this book, she would need to edit it and not talk about the prayer at all. So this other educator began to put up a front with the administration and say, we do this all throughout. We talk about other faiths all the time. Why can we not talk about this particular person's faith? And they did, they were a significant person in our history. Why can we not talk about this particular, I'm sorry I'm being general, but I don't want to point out any one school or any one person. But they asked, why can't we talk about the Christian faith when we talk about everything else? It finally came down to the school decided because the one person stood their ground and defended that prayer is okay to talk about when you're talking about the character of tenaciousness, of having tenacity, of moving forward and not quitting. And with this other person saying, we can't do this, they decided, well, we won't make this the main book, but we'll make it a book that you can, like a suggestive reading. I believe we are called to defend the faith in many ways. It's not always going to look the way we think it should. But I do believe if we're listening to the Spirit of the Lord, He will tell us when it's appropriate to stand our ground for Him. Now, I think this educator did exactly what they should have done. Remind them that there's nothing wrong with talking about who Jesus is. He's a real figure in history. There's nothing wrong with this lady saying that this is how she was tenacious, is by through prayer. You're not asking the kids, now we're all going to pray. You're just simply saying for one particular person in this time and place, this is what brought about the character of tenaciousness.
I wonder what kind of things are happening in your individual lives where maybe the Lord has asked you to stand your ground. You've had a moment just to think a little bit. And now just put upon that, not only where is he calling you to stand your ground, where have you abdicated and decided not to? We're going to get into that because I'm sure you've got a lot of things going on in your mind like, boy, is he telling us that we should be radical in some areas? Yes and no. And we're going to see that Paul actually shows us how to be radical without being mean. Verse 6. Tertullus continues not only with the hypocrisy and the name calling, but he also continues then with just outright lying. So if you remember from last week, their big objection against Paul was that he tried to bring a Gentile into the inner court of the temple. That he not only tried, but he did. Now, his language, Tertullus's language about Paul changes to he even tried. So all of a sudden, he backs up from the original accusation into now painting a little different picture where it's so subjective that it's just his word against Paul's word. So either they believe Tertullus or they believe Paul. Because maybe he tried. I mean, it's one of those things like, how do you determine that? Did he try by saying, hey, so-and-so, come with me, and that's trying? Did he try to sneak him in? But we know from Paul, he didn't do any of this. So Tertullus continues with lying because he wants to do the best that he can to convince Felix to kill Paul. That's his, his main objective of this whole accusation. So we learn from this first encounter, that this is how Paul was attacked verbally. And I think if we pause for a second, at some time in our life, or maybe right now, when we've stood for Jesus, we've had the same kind of attack against us. And I'm, I'm going to push a little bit and say, if you haven't seen this kind of attack, Maybe you need to ask yourself, have you stood for Jesus? Did you get that? If you haven't seen this kind of attack, because this is a pretty normal attack when you stand for Jesus. Hypocrisy, name-calling, and lies. Because we know that Satan is the father of lies. And we know that Satan hates anything that has to do with Jesus. So if there's going to be an enemy attacking you, they're going to use lies to try to destroy you. But we're also going to see how did Paul respond. And that's, to get to that, we have to get to the next verses. Verse 10, the governor, this is Felix, then motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years 
so I gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. That's exactly what happened. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple. Exactly what happened. Nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets in the city. Exactly what happened. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. That's very true. But I admit that I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. After several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money, to, this is all true, to aid my people and offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. And if you remember, he went through the Nazarite purification ceremony. So he is just basically telling them exactly what he did. There was no crowd around me and no rioting. But some Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. So we see that Paul's defense begins with both logic, just a logical argument, this is what's going on, and truth, logic and truth. He doesn't try to change or manipulate the facts in any way. He just simply says exactly what happened. The problem that they had with that is that Paul actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they didn't believe that Jesus was. This is the same problem that Jesus had when he said, I am the Messiah, and the Jewish authority said, there's no way you can be the Messiah. And they hated him for that, and they hated that people were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. When he was pushed up against the wall on this, Jesus, about whether he is the Messiah or not, he answered this way in John chapter eight. If I want glory for myself, it doesn't count, but it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and I obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The problem for the Jewish authority is that they had great power and they were receiving great wealth because they were in that position of power. And in the moment that Jesus brought about his messiahship was a threat, a direct threat to how they would continue in their position of authority. It was a direct threat to their yearly salary. It was a direct threat to how they lived life 
right now. It meant that they might have to get away from their large house that they had accumulated and all the goods that they had, in a sense, stolen from the people or manipulated the people. It meant they had to come true. With if this is who Jesus is and this is what he's saying, then the way we are currently living doesn't make sense anymore. It meant huge change for them, and they just did not want that. And so they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, even though they knew the signs of the prophets pointed to him. They had studied all this, and they knew it, but the truth didn't matter to them because the change that Jesus was calling them into was too great. So they disregarded the truth, and instead they bought a lie, that the Messiah hadn't come, that they still needed to wait, and that they should just continue the way they are living until that time comes. And the best way to continue that is kill Jesus and get rid of him. And now as they continue, the best way to continue without this way, the movement, the way, getting into the way, is to kill the leader, which is Paul. Get rid of him. But Paul didn't only use logic and truth for his defense because Paul had a greater defense than just logic and truth. He also used uncompromising love. See, many people don't see Paul this way. They see him kind of as a person that comes in, blows through the place, People get saved and then he moves on. But Paul was probably one of the most loving characters in the Bible. Our culture will often say, it really doesn't matter what you believe in, it doesn't make a difference as long as you are sincere. Would you agree with that? Have you heard that? In fact, um, Ken Rogers and I just heard this recently at Starbucks because we ran into a person. We were talking to her, and um, we asked about, I don't even know how we got in this conversation, but another name for our coffee. And she came up with divine coffee, and her answer was because that kind of works with any religion. And Ken looked at me, and he knew I was just about ready to say something. But I felt like at that moment wasn't quite right because I hadn't really established any kind of relationship with this person and it would have been just an offense rather than an actual invitation to who Jesus was but I think oftentimes we even may look at our friends and go well they don't believe in Jesus but they're a really good person Have you ever said that? Or your family? Well, they really don't follow Jesus, but... It's all good. Paul saw this a different way. This is his uncompromising part. Is that he knew that the only truth was that Jesus was the way, the truth, the hope the life, and it was only through him. 
he knew that if he didn't believe in Jesus, there were eternal consequences. He didn't want anyone to walk out of his presence and be reassured that whatever they're doing is just okay. Whatever they believe is okay as long as they're sincere. Because he knew that Satan is sincere too. He sincerely hates Jesus. He sincerely hates anyone that would follow Jesus. He sincerely hates that truth would be brought out about Jesus. And so Paul uncompromisingly loved people by making sure that they heard the truth about Jesus, regardless of the consequences that would come their way or his way. Our culture needs to be reminded of this as well. And I think it's sometimes the Lord push, puts upon our hearts that he's asking us to be a little bit of a troublemaker or a plague to those who reject Jesus. Not to those people directly, but to the culture around us. We cannot just continue on just ignoring and just saying everything's okay. Let's just be, I think the word often is tolerant. But what it actually means is not tolerant. It means tell everyone what they believe is good as long as they're sincere. There's this professor that made an acrostic of the name Paul. So he took the letters P-A-U-L and he described the character of Paul through these four letters. The first one, P, stands for polluted. Paul was the first one to know, to preach that he was the chief among sinners. There was nothing good in him apart from Jesus. He only was good because he had been saved by the blood of Christ. A was for apostle. He knew he was chosen to lead, to start new things, to go to new places and make sure that more people would hear about Jesus. U was for uncompromising. And I've just spoke about that, that no matter where he was, whether he was sick, where he's beaten up, whether he was just woken up because he had been totally bruised and beaten by the public, he never missed an opportunity to talk about Jesus and to tell his story of how he was transformed by his encounter with Jesus. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't seeking approval other places. All he did was continue to say, I was on, I'm on a mission, and my mission is tell people about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He didn't let anything else get in the way. He didn't let his tent making, which he was profitable, 
didn't let that get in the way. He leveraged that to stay on mission. He didn't let friendships get in the way. He leveraged those for the gospel. He was always on mission, uncompromisingly. The gospel always came before other things. And the last was loving. His love wasn't weak. It wasn't just about someone receiving a good feeling from him. His love was honest and true because it tore him apart to see people miss the story of Jesus. It tore him apart to see his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters miss the Messiah. And so even though they were his enemies, he was willing to stand before them with shouts, with them calling him a liar, with the abuse, physical, emotional, and spiritual abuse that he got from his own family, the Jewish people, he would still tell them, I love you, and I want you to hear the message of Jesus. He was uncompromising with the truth of God, and therefore he was so loving. That's how we love people. It's not just through our actions. It's not just through hugs and good feeling. It's through telling the truth about God. That's the ultimate love. It's about telling the truth about God is the ultimate love. Did you hear that? Because our society has turned this upside down. It's not that whenever someone leaves you, they go, oh, I got just a good feeling from Aaron today. Because guess who that's about? Who's that about? Who is that about? It's about me. But when I tell them about the truth of God and it rocks their world and they go, holy crap. I'm loved by God. He loves me. He loves my past because he created me. He's made good on every bad decision I've made. He doesn't compromise with me. He always stands next to me. He doesn't leave me. God loves me. That's no longer about me. Because some of you know, I'm not that. But God is. Paul loved the people even when they hated him the most. I can learn something about that. Can you? In the moment that people hate you the most, are you able to love them with the truth of God? I think the greatest example of this in the life of Paul is that if you remember when he was Saul, he was a zealot. And he was a zealot because he fully believed 
that those who were following Jesus were just messing up who God was. And so he thought the best way to clean things up was to just kill people and throw them in jail. Anybody that followed Jesus, just get rid of them. And he pushed his whole life into this. He didn't stop, he just kept pushing forward, putting more people in jail, killing more people, separating families, whatever it took, so that this whole thing, the way, could be exterminated. That was his character. But in a moment of experiencing Jesus on his way to Damascus, he gets fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if he wasn't changed from the inside out, you would expect that he would do the same thing, but now it's about Jesus. So anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, you just kill him, you throw him in jail. You... And we kind of, we laugh at that, right? But what's happening now in our culture with other Christians? When someone has an opposing view, what do we when I say we, it's because it's our brothers and sisters. What do we do? We attack. Right? We don't just give the truth of God and let that stand. No, we feel like we have to get in there. We have to say ugly things about these people. We have to call them names. We have to think of ways to get rid of them. Am I off board here? Am I right? And what does that make us? We've just stepped into the same accusers that stood before Paul and were hypocrites, liars, and name callers. We cannot be that. Paul was not that. He did not defend that way. Paul stood and took whatever punishment they were going to give him, and he didn't care because he stood in the truth of God. Paul was uncompromising with that truth, and he was loving. Those people that hated him, he still wanted them to receive the message of Jesus, and if you continue in the book of Acts, you'll see that he sits down with Felix and he talks with Felix and his wife more about who Jesus is. If Ananias would have given him the chance, but his heart, heart was too hard to receive anything from Paul, he would have sat down with Ananias. That's the character of Paul. This, the guy that wanted him dead, he would sit down next to him, and he would tell him about who Jesus was. Not in a brash way, but in a very calm and loving way. Why can't we do that? This is what I want us to learn from defending the faith. It's not about name calling. It's not about trying to say what's wrong with the people who don't have the truth. It's simply giving God's truth. This is what he says. And walking alongside of them, loving them, until maybe that truth begins to reign in their own ears. We can't change people. God does. What he asks us to do is to be his truth bringers. 
We simply bring his word, his truth, his character to whatever situation we find ourselves in. That's what that educator did in the school this last week, is they brought their, their character after the character of God and stood there and said, we cannot deny that there are people who believe in Jesus, just so that everyone feels good about this. We cannot stop saying, we can't compromise on who we are just because a few people may be uncomfortable. So what does this mean? Direct application for you, because I think that's important, because sometimes when we talk about Paul, you go, oh, well, he's an apostle, and I'm a business owner, so that doesn't apply to me. Oh, this is directly applicable to you. This means, where is God asking you to step in and represent his kingdom in your workplace and bringing truth? In your families, you may say, I have a messed up family. Anybody messed up family? Raise your hand. You should all raise your hand because you know we all have messed up families. Talk to me for longer than 10 minutes and ask me a few more questions about my family and you'll soon realize I've got a really messed up family as well. I'm messed up. I want us to leave today realizing that if we love Christ, you love Jesus, then you will love people. And if you love Christ and you love people, you will not compromise his gospel. Because you just can't. And the moment that you find yourself in that position where you want to compromise his gospel because you're scared of the approval of your employees or, or your wife or your husband or your children or your cousin or your uncle or your best friend, or a new acquaintance, or a new place that you're engaging in exercise, or a new restaurant that you're in, the moment that you feel like you need to compromise the gospel is a moment you should stop for a second and say, do I love Jesus? If I love Jesus, why can't I not love them? And not love them so they, that love is reflected off of me and they go, Oh, Aaron's so great. Because doesn't that feel good? I mean, just say it. Aaron's so great. <laughs> Come on, don't. You're going to hurt me. Ah, oh, see. We want that. We crave it. For people to go, oh, you're so awesome. But what Paul's calling us to do is to step back into that spot and go, Don't let this be reflected. Let him be reflected. Take the opportunity to tell him who Jesus is and what he did. Tell your story. That Jesus changed me as a man. And he started as a little baby, but as I grew up and I was in his word, even through Sunday school and all the things that I did and VBS, it wasn't those actions that changed me. It was the people that the Lord sent into my life that changed me. There's a guy, Michael Hayes, who brought me into the devotion of looking at God's word apart from Sunday morning. Listening to his voice and praying apart from Sunday morning. 
It's people like Paul Brink who showed me that that's awesome, reading God's word and praying, but don't keep it to yourself. Walk into a stranger's home and represent Jesus. Bring God's word to them because that's how you love them. Recognize that the person that no one is talking to, that get an image of the cafeteria lunchroom at a school where the one kid is sitting by themselves and they smell because they forgot their deodorant and no one wants to be next to them. That you go, stu- you go sit down next to the smelly kid, the unpopular kid, and you love them. And you continue that same action as an adult. You look for the person that's been disenfranchised and you walk alongside them and you remind them that they are significant in the kingdom of God. You do this with your family, that weird uncle, you walk alongside of him and you remind him of the truth of God, that he is a son of God. You do this with your kid that has hurt your heart so bad that you don't want them in your house anymore. And you go to them and you say, you're welcome into the kingdom of God. Jesus has given you an invitation to be with him today. So for any of you that are sitting here today and you are in that edge of feeling pushed out, the invitation is for you today. And there's a direct invitation. I would love for you to come to Sylvia Nelson's house at five o'clock. And please put other things aside. If you're feeling a little bit off, a little bit disenfranchised, a little bit weak in your faith, experience Jesus today. Outside of this place, in a home, with a family who wants to love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us this time to talk about what it looks like to defend the faith. That it does mean that we take a risk. So we pray for the courage and the confidence to take that risk. Lord, we also know that it also takes a lot of love, and we are not love. We are the opposite of love. But because you loved us first, we have love. So may we go to you to give love. Help us not to make love about ourselves, but make it about you. We barely understand it. In fact, we won't understand it until we come face to face with you. But Lord, give us a glimpse, a glimpse of your love each day. And when we forget, Lord, remind us that you loved us first, that you sent your son to die for us, that he had great love for us. And we can just share just a, a small, small piece of that with others. Lord, I pray that you would pour your spirit into the hearts of the people here today. Let us not walk out of this place as the same person. Let us not walk out of this place with the same fear. Let us not walk out of this place ready to return to the same old sin. Let us walk out of this place, Lord, renewed with your spirit, being led by your spirit, being reassured of your promises that you are with us Amen.